welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield, and I'm recording this on Thursday, October 12, 2023, here in Chicago. So, I just felt before the Lord that in this program I needed to say something about the monstrously evil attacks that took place in Israel this past weekend. Uh, First, in a direct way, and then in an indirect way, uh, I want to use the Uh, program to remind us about the real situation of the world in light of that evil attack, what it shows us about the situation of the world today. And so that's going to be the the basic format for the program. First of all, as far as commenting directly on it, I I don't like to use the word terrorist um, because it's kind of a romanticized term. It sounds like you're doing something for some kind of cause. I don't use that term. Uh, I just use call these people who perpetrated these attacks what they are, murderers. They're just murderers, plain and simple. I don't care what they claim they're doing, what kind of uh, motive they have for their attack. They're simply murderers. They murdered old people, infirm, even young infants in their cribs. Uh, apparently, they beheaded these young infants, toddlers, completely helpless, innocent individuals, and they celebrated it in videos it, they not only did it, they, they made it, they glorified it. They paraded these bodies in the streets, And first of all. And then secondly, what has been so telling is the almost complete lack of condemnation of these attacks by Muslim leaders all across the world, and specifically here in America. I, I'm not aware that anyone has spoken out and, and to, to say, no, 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 this is not what Islam is all about. This is not what we stand for. We completely denounce these monstrous, uh, evil acts, and we condemn them, and we say that's not what Islam is all about. Uh, I saw this one uh, one Muslim woman who's in Congress. Someone was trying to get her to say something to condemn the attack. She simply wouldn't do it. She just walked away. And in many countries around the world, uh, even here in the United States, you had demonstrations right after the attacks in support of the Palestinians. Strongly indicating, we support what just happened. We agree with what just happened. Again, I would say, where were the Muslim leaders to condemn these attacks, to say this this is evil and this is absolutely not what Islam is all about? The fact that they happened in the name of Islam, number one, and number two, then Muslims around the world and Muslim leaders failed to condemn them in any way like they should have and to denounce them and to distance themselves from these attacks, that shows there is absolutely no moral equivalence between Islam and the Christian faith. No one can ever try to say that there's any kind of equivalence between these two things. Violence has always been a core part of Islam. The founder of Islam, Muhammad, was a great general. He put together this very, very powerful army uh, probably at that time the most powerful army in the world, and he used that to spread Islam. That's how Islam spread in the early uh, centuries after it was founded. So there's always been this element of violence in the Muslim religion. It's just there. It's undeniable. I'm not saying you always have these kinds of atrocities, but this element of violence has always been there. In contrast with the Christian faith, the founder of our faith went to the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's how the Christian faith is spread. And in the first centuries, many, many of his followers indeed followed him in that respect. They were also put to death for their 
faithfulness to Christ, the saying became that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's very often how the Christian faith is spread, in exactly the opposite way that Islam has spread. Now, it is true that eventually uh, this religion of Christianity came up, and as a result of that, many people who were involved in Christianity committed heinous acts themselves, supposedly in the name of Christ. You know, during the Crusades, and especially during the religion religious wars in Europe, these two periods, you had these just awful crimes committed in the name of Christianity. And as one who is a genuine believer in Christ, I have no reluctance and no hesitation to condemn these heinous things that were done, supposedly in the name of Christ. They were just awful, vile, despicable acts that have nothing to do with the Christian faith. They're just the exact opposite of what the Christian faith stands for. But it's much harder for Muslims to condemn violent acts committed in the name of Islam because, as I say, it's a simple fact of history that is a core part of how their religion has always been spread. Now, still, you hope that they would speak out against this type of uh, particularly evil, heinous atrocity. But as I say, you just haven't seen it. And, uh, and, and that really underlines the fact, as I say, that there really is no moral equivalence whatsoever between the Christian faith and Islam. So that's what I have to say directly about these monstrous evil attacks. And you just, whenever you consider them, you just have to shake your head that anyone could be involved in something that evil, that kind of bloodshed, and think they're serving God. You just, you just have to wonder about it. But we need to pray, of course, for the people of Israel, also for the Palestinians, because there's a lot of innocent people on both sides who are going to die and suffer as a result of this, and it could very easily spread into a wider conflict in the Middle East. And, of course, some people feel this uh, is indicating the Lord's soon return. I'm not sure that I agree with that, but it sh should certainly cause us to have much more of a realization that we are looking for the Lord's return, that's for sure. But we don't know how the events are going to play out in the coming weeks and months. It could end up in a much wider conflict. Um, there could be uh, incidences of such terrorism, such uh, violence in America. It could happen. So we need to be very much praying for the situation, very vigilant before the Lord about these things. But I want to use uh, the rest of the program to consider in the light of these attacks a question that a lot of people have which is, why does God allow these things to happen? Why does he allow this kind of suffering? And as we consider this question, uh, my real hope is that we as the believers in Christ will have a much more sober, much clearer view of how we should see this present age and what should be our relationship with the world. Basically, the world has a false appearance. Sometimes it appears so wonderful and it's, uh, there's joyful things. But when we see the real nature of the world, that's when we see through its false appearance, and it helps us to have a proper stand towards the world. And the title of this podcast is, of course, Jesus, the Once and Future King. And what that indicates is that Jesus is not currently ruling over this world in a direct way. The direct ruler of this world is Satan. And that's going to be the basic theme of the rest of this program, spoiler alert, uh, and that's what we as the believers in Christ really need to be clear about. When we really see this, then it will be much easier for us to have a proper stance towards the world and to be those who do not love the world because we realize its ruler is so unspeakably evil. And so that's what I want to spend the rest of this program to consider. 
In the Bible, you have three basic offices for serving God. And those are the office of prophet, of priest, and of king. And Jesus, for sure, served God as a great prophet when he was on the earth. Of course, he was much more than that. But he did so much as a prophet to tell us what is going to happen in the future and also to speak on behalf of God to people. For sure, he was a great, great prophet. Again, much more than that, but he was a prophet. That's one of the basic offices that you can serve God in, the office of a prophet. And we know, of course, he very much served God as a priest. In the Aaronic priesthood, in his death on the cross, today he's also serving God in the priesthood of Melchizedek, in Hebrews chapter 7, leading many sons into glory. So for sure, he has entered into the office of the priesthood. But he has not yet entered into his office as king. And it's so important for us to see that. So what do I mean by saying that Jesus is the once and future king? Well, just very briefly, of course, when Jesus was born, he was born as king of the Jews. That's why the Magi came from the east to offer him gifts. They said they wanted to see him who was born king of the Jews. And he grew up uh, in Both he and John the Baptist before him proclaimed that the kingdom of the heavens was at hand. And they were trying to bring the nation of Israel to repent and turn back to God so that the kingdom of the heavens could be established among them at that time. But instead, under the influence of the evil Jewish religious leaders, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus. And as we all know, he was crucified. And at the top of the cross, there was that sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So he came to offer the kingdom to Israel, and they rejected him. And therefore, in that sense, the kingdom has been suspended for a period of time. And because of that, Jesus today is not reigning as king in his own right. And I want to look at some Bible verses in this regard. The first one is in the Gospel of Luke. And this is when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to announce the good news that she had been selected to be the mother of Jesus. Gabriel tells Mary, Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father David. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. So Gabriel is saying here, Jesus is going to sit on the throne of his father, David. That's going to be his throne, the throne of his father, David. And this promise is reaffirmed by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, where he says, Being a prophet, David knew God had sworn to him with an oath that of the fruit of his loins, he would seat one upon his throne. So Jesus is going to sit upon the throne of his father, David. When he came to earth the first time, that's what he came to do. He came to sit upon the throne of his father, David, but he was rejected by the Jews as their king. And so he's had to go away for a period of time. And for the entire rest of the New Testament, you never see Jesus referred to as a king, except in relation to the second coming. There's a reference in 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, then in Revelation 17, verse 14, And ultimately, in Revelation 19, verse 16, he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So it is in his second coming, that's when the promise will be fulfilled that he is going to sit on his own throne, which is the throne of his father David. Now it's right to say 
that yes, in heaven, Jesus reigns in a general way, but he's not sitting on his own throne. He is sitting on the throne of his father. And the verse that tells us this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. Listen to what this verse says. This is in one of the promises to the overcomers. He who overcomes, to him I will give to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So Jesus today is not on his own throne. He is ruling and reigning, but he's doing so from the throne of his father. And why is this so significant? You know, some, I've been in meetings where, where sometimes or I've heard people pray in this way, King Jesus, oh, King Jesus, we believe in you, this, do this or that. And I, I think they, when they pray this way, they feel they have some kind of advanced form of spirituality or something. Or they, maybe they're ahead of others. But every time I hear this kind of a prayer within me, I just groan and I, I feel defiled. Frankly, my conscience doesn't feel good about that at all. Maybe you have the same sense. There's something not right with that. Well, the reason is, if you say that Jesus is the king of this world today, he's ruling over the earth, you make him responsible for all the evil things that are going on in the world. What kind of a king is this that puts up with this kind of slaughter that we just saw in the Middle East, in Israel, uh, and the wars and the death and uh, the, the famine and the poverty and the hunger and uh, the injustice in so many ways, uh, you, you don't deal with, do anything to deal with this kind of unrighteous situation on the earth. What kind of a king is this? But if you say Jesus is the king, you make him responsible for the current situation of the world. So in other words, you're not honoring him when you call him the king today. You're insulting him. You're insulting him to the uttermost by making him responsible for this terrible situation we see in today's world. The moment Jesus assumes his office of kingship, he has to deal with all the unrighteous situations in the world. And that is why he has not yet entered into specifically his office as a king. Of course, he will do so in the future. And at that time, he will establish immediately absolute righteousness on the earth. But he is not yet directly ruling over this world. Schofield has a very good note about this in uh on this verse is Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 in the Schofield Study Bible. And once again, I would say, if you do not have a copy of the 1917 Schofield Study Bible, you really need to get one and read through the notes. It's very, very solid and very, very helpful for understanding this type of thing. So here's what Schofield says, says about this verse. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Schofield says this passage is conclusive that Christ is not now seated upon his own throne. The Davidic covenant and the promises of God through the prophets and the angel Gabriel concerning the messianic kingdom await fulfillment. Very, very good statement. And that was very helpful for me to see that a while ago when I read that. So we need to be clear. Jesus is not now sitting upon his own throne. Because he's working to bring so many people to repentance. But as soon as he sits upon his throne, he has to put an end to all the unrighteousness that's going on in the world today. Now let's read another verse in this regard. And that's Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. And of course, this is part of the prophecy on Olivet, when the Lord is talking about his return. And this is where he begins to tell about the separation of the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25, verse 31 when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And that it goes on, it says, and the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But the key thing I want to see here is, it says, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. This is when the promise will be fulfilled that he is going to sit on the throne of David, his father. So the fact that he says, the Lord says here that then he will sit on the throne means today he is not sitting on that throne. He is not yet sitting on that throne. And again, what you see right away when he sits on that throne, he brings all the nations before him to judgment because he will not tolerate any unrighteousness in his kingdom. So in a very real sense, the fact that Jesus is not sitting on his throne today is a mercy to the inhabitants of the world to give us time to repent and forsake our sins and turn to the Lord. That's what he's, why he tolerates the situation today so he can bring people, his people, to repentance. And when, of course, that process is complete, then he will come and establish his kingdom on the earth and put an end to this present evil age. But if anyone asks you this, this question, why does God allow such evil in the world today? You can answer along these lines. Because Jesus was rejected as king. We've all rejected, and specifically the nation of Israel rejected, Jesus as king. And so he's working to bring people to repentance, and then he will come and establish his kingdom on the earth. And at that time, all these evil things that we see today, those aren't going to be happening then. Then there will be, be a time of perfect righteousness on the earth. I praise the Lord for that, for that 1,000-year reign, to be clear. The 1,000-year reign of the millennium, as we've talked about in previous podcasts. So that will do it for this segment of the podcast. And the second half will come back, since we've talked in this half about what is not the current situation of the world, then we'll come back in the second half and talk about what is the current situation of the world. So we will be back with you on the other side of the break. I just want to take a minute to remind the listeners that this program is being produced in connection with my website, which is thechristianfaith.org. Uh, I hope you'll visit that. I think there's a number of very useful resources on there to help you with your spiritual growth, with your walk with the Lord, and with your serving of the Lord, and to have a view of what God's purpose is. If you want to subscribe to our e-letter, which we send out a couple times a week, just click on the subscribe link there. And if you'd like to contact us, if you have comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. So if Jesus is not ruling over the world today in a direct way, well, then you have to ask, who is? And as I've already mentioned in the program, and we all already know, the direct ruler of this world today is Satan. And I would just ask, how's that working out for everybody? My guess is not very well. And so that's what I want to consider in this segment of the program. Really take some time to consider that. Now, of course, this is a very, very negative topic, but you have to deal with these things to know the whole counsel of God, first of all. And secondly, if we are very clear about this fact and have a very sober view of this matter, it will really help us to be those who do not love the world, as I said earlier, because we'll have such a clear view of just how evil this world really is. And I said the same type of thing when I did some programs on the Antichrist. When we see the miserable ending this world is going to have again, 
It helps us to realize my future is not in this world. I should not be one who's seeking the good of this age. I should be going out of the world, morally speaking, to follow Christ. But if we think the world's such a lovely place and such a wonderful place and maybe just has some problems here and there, we're not going to do that. We're not going to be those who are really following Christ. It's when we see the world for what it really is, that's when we become the true followers of Christ, who forsake all to follow him, who realize our reward is not in this age. Our reward is going to be with the Lord when he returns. So that's why getting into this topic, even though it is so negative, can be very, very healthy and really be a real protection to us as the believers in Christ. So now I just want to go through some of the verses in the New Testament that really deal with this matter in a very specific way. And the first one is in John chapter 12, verse 31. This is when Jesus, is just before he goes to the cross, and he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out. And of course, he is talking about Satan there. He calls him the ruler of this world. But he also says, now this ruler is going to be cast out. And yes, that happened at the cross. In a moral sense, the judgment was pronounced on Satan at the cross. So thank the Lord, the ruler of this world has been cast out. And that's why Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples in resurrection in Matthew 28, he could say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because in a, in a moral sense, the ruler of this world has been cast out. But, and there's a huge but here, the sentence on him has not yet been carried out. Morally, he's been cast out. The judgment has been pronounced, but that judgment has not yet been carried out. That will happen at the Lord's second coming when you look at Revelation chapter 20. Then Satan is bound and cast into the abyss. And then ultimately, of course, he goes to the lake of fire. That's when the sentence will be cast out. And when Satan, practically speaking, will be cast out as the ruler of this world. So morally speaking, yes, it's right to say he has been cast out already. But practically speaking, it has not happened yet. So in a practical sense, he is still the ruler of this world, as Jesus says here. And he has, says it in a couple of other verses in this section of the Gospel of John 2. Let's just, I'll just read those quickly. One is 14, John 14, verse 30. I will no longer speak much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and in me he has nothing. Again, referring to Satan as the ruler of this world, talking about how Satan is going to come uh, and instigate the Jews to put him on the cross. And then the third time, in John 16, verse 11, again, Jesus is speaking about how Satan has been judged, and he says, of judgment for the ruler of this world has been judged. So you see this three times in the Gospel of John, that Jesus himself refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And, of course, the fact that Satan is the ruler of this world has a lot of practical implications. At the very uh, beginning of his ministry, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And here's what the devil said to him in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. The devil took him up to, and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority and their glory I shall give to you, for it has been delivered unto me, and I give it to whomever I will. Therefore, if you shall worship before me, it shall all be yours. Now, Satan wasn't lying here. Of course, he's the father of lies, but he would, he would know better than to try to deceive Jesus about this. He was just telling him the situation. He's responsible for distributing all the kingdoms of the world. 
Now, again, it is right to say God is over all. When we talk about Satan as the ruler of this world, still it is the case that God is over all. And yes, today Jesus does exercise all authority in heaven and on earth. And it is somewhat mysterious, but still you have to say, according to his authority at the present time, Jesus is still allowing Satan to act as the ruler of this world until his return. And we need to be very, very clear about this. Because as I say, that will help us to really understand the situation of the world. Another very important verse in this regard is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And I'll just I'll read verse 3 as well. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about his gospel. He says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in those who are perishing. Then verse 4 says, In whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, might not shine on them. Very, very important statement. So here, Satan is referred to, not just as the ruler of this world, but as the God of this age. And what does he do as the God of this age? He blinds the minds and the thoughts of the unbelieving, so that they wouldn't open their hearts to Christ and be saved. As Paul tells us here very specifically, when we preach the gospel, we have to be very aware of this fact. When, when the Lord commissioned Paul in Acts chapter 26, verse 18, very significant verse, because there's a sequence there in terms of how people turn to the Lord. And he says he sends him to the Gentiles. The first thing he, he says is to open their eyes. Then secondly, they turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to God. That's really dealing with the God of this age dealing with all his opposition, all his frustration of the gospel. And then uh, the Lord goes on, he says to Paul, that they may receive forgiveness of sins on the positive side and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So when we preach the gospel, we have to really be exercised to deal with the God of this age and his blinding work that keeps people from believing in Jesus Christ. Whenever someone's living for this age, they're living for the good of this age, for sure they're under the authority of the God of this age, who is Satan. Very, very strong statement here from Paul about who the real God of this age it's not, is. It's not the living God. It is Satan himself, this evil ruler of the world. And so you can say, you know, these people, uh, these religious fanatics who slaughter people in the name of their religion, and whether it's Islam, sometimes it's Christians, or people at least acting in the name of Christ, whether it's Jews, whether it's a Buddhist, any kind, anytime you have these religious fanatics who do these unspeakably evil things in the name of their religion, they really are, in a sense, you could say they are serving God, but it's not the God that they think. It's not the, the, the living God. It's the God of this age who is instigating these evil acts because according to his evil nature, as we read in John eight forty four, he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He deceives people with his lies and he instigates them to carry out these types of terrible murders. You know, it's very interesting. A lot of people don't realize, you know, according to the Bible, the very first murder ever committed in the history of mankind was committed in the name of religion. Have you ever thought about that? That was Cain and his offering. He had a kind of religious offering to God, but God wouldn't accept his offering. He wouldn't look upon it, it says, and so Cain became angry. And what did he do? He went out and killed and murdered his own brother whose offering God had accepted. 
And this is a picture of how God's genuine people on the earth have always been persecuted and indeed murdered by the religious people. Very, very telling picture. Again, the, the, the very first murder ever committed in the history of mankind was committed in the name of religion. And in some ways, you know, religion is good. It teaches people to be moral sometimes and to do good things and to do good works. But quite often, it also has the effect of turning people into fanatics because they're convinced they're on a mission from God. And, and how dare you oppose what they want to do? How dare you do that? God has told them to do this or that. And they become quite fanatical. And then they can do any kind of evil thing and justify it in their own mind because they think it's what God wants them to do. Well, again, yes, that's right. Just not the God that they think. It's, again, the God of this age. Very, very sober thought. Lord, have mercy upon us. The Lord, protect us ever from becoming religious ourselves, even, even to turn Christianity into a religion, because then it's also possible to become something quite evil. Lord, save us. Another verse to look at in this regard is in John's first epistle. In 1 John chapter 5, not his gospel, but his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John says this, We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the evil one. And I have to say, that verse never impressed me so much as it has in the last few days. I didn't understand why he puts these two statements together. On the one hand, we are of God, and on the other, the whole world lies in the evil one. Well, what John is saying here is that we, as the believers in Christ, are living in a world system that is completely in Satan's hands. That is simply the nature of the world in which we live. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we're hated and mocked and despised by the world. As the Lord told the disciples in, in the Gospel of John very shortly before he was betrayed, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That's just our path as believers in Christ. This is the kind of life we should expect, a life of not being welcomed and received. In America, of course, yes, it's a little different because this country has always been more welcoming of Christians. Uh, that may be changing now. And it, it's for sure the Bible indicates, you see indications such as in Matthew 24, that as we get closer to the end of the age, the hostility towards Christians all throughout the world is going to increase. So it has been a little different in, in this country, but it may be, that may be changing. We'll see. We don't know what the future holds. But in principle, we need to realize, even if we're in a country that is somewhat more accepting of Christians, the world as a whole does lie in the evil one. It simply is his kingdom. And we need to be very, very clear and very, very sober about that. And again, I understand this is a negative word. It's not an easy word to hear. But hopefully it will give us a clear view of what our stand toward the world really should be. Now, there's one more verse that I want to read in this regard, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. But because this is such a negative subject, what I'm, I'm going to read this whole section in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, because that's such a wonderful presentation of the gospel and of how we've been saved. And then I'll come back to verse 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you, being dead in your offenses and sins, in which you once walked according to the age of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit who now is working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the thoughts, 
and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in offenses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together with him, and seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might display the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Praise the Lord for that. What a wonderful salvation we have in Christ, saints. You just read this passage. My goodness, we were dead in our offenses and sins. We walked according to the age of this world under the authority of the ruler of the air. We conducted ourselves in the same way, but God was so rich in his mercy. Even when we were dead in our offenses and in our sins, he saved us by his grace. Praise the Lord for that, saints. And raised us up together with Christ, so that now we're seated with him in the heavenlies as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Praise the Lord, saints, for this salvation. Just a wonderful, wonderful passage of the scripture. But to appreciate this salvation, we have to realize just how far away we were from God. We were dead in our offenses and sins. And walking in these things, according to the age of this world. And here's the verse that applies to the topic we're on in this podcast. According to the ruler of the authority of the air. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. The spirit who now is working in the sons of disobedience. So Satan, he's the god of this age. He's the ruler of this world. He's also the ruler of the authority of the air. Now that refers to the fallen angels he has under his dominion, whom he uses to rule over the world today in a hidden, uh, evil, spiritual way, and through them to rule over the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of the authority of the air, and this one is also the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, all those who refuse to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the spirit that is at work in the world today. It's not just that people are evil in themselves. There is an evil spirit very often that is instigating people to do things like blow up buildings or slaughter innocent children and think they're serving God when they do it. This kind of spirit is the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. But we're not in a position to condemn anybody because Paul makes it very clear here in verse 3, among whom we also once conducted ourselves. We were exactly in that same boat, but God by his mercy reached down saints, and saved you and saved me, praise the Lord, to make us trophies of his grace, to pull us out of this fallen, evil world situation. It's only by his grace we could be saved, and thank the Lord we have been saved. But that's the world in which we live, this world that is under the ruler of the authority of the air outwardly, and inwardly is often instigated by that same spirit of disobedience, that same spirit of hatred toward God. That's the nature of the world in which we live, and that's what was manifested this past weekend in these attacks on the nation of Israel. And in many other places, many other times, we've seen this same spirit uh, causing so many evil things and conflicts and 
terrible, terrible things all throughout the world. That's the nature of the world in which we live. And, of course, the ultimate manifestation of the evil that is in the world and of the world's hatred toward God is that when the Son of God, the only perfectly innocent, sinless human being who ever lived, when the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came into the world, the world put him on the cross and murdered him, crucified him. And that is really God's ultimate judgment of the world. That is the real nature of the world, the real attitude of the world toward God. You see that in that picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. That's, that really exposes what the world really is. And that should be our estimation of the world. Now, as Paul said, he's not going to boast in anything except the cross of Christ through which I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. That should be our stand toward the world. We take the same stand that Jesus did by his grace. Praise the Lord for that. And that's why the Apostle John tells us also in his, in his epistle, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James says, Whoever desires to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In very, very sober words. So for sure, we should not be those who love the world. And it's when we see the world for what it is, that's what helps us to be those, practically speaking, who do not love the world. You know, when God wanted to get the children of Israel out of Egypt, he sent the plagues to expose to them what Egypt really was, as far as he was concerned. And that helped to prepare them to make their exodus out of the land of Egypt. They didn't want to be in a place like that any longer. Because they saw Egypt for what it really was. And in the same way, when we see the world for what it really is, then we're not going to have any problem with loving the world. Now, I want to add here, I can't tell you what it means to not love the world at least not in a specific way. When John talks about the world, he says this, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So he doesn't specifically say uh, the world is cars, the world is having a nice house, the world is having a good career and making a lot of money. He doesn't define the world, the things in the world in that way. He talks about things that are more inward, things that are in our being, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We have to deal with these things inwardly to be those who do not love the world. Now, it will involve some dealing with outward things for sure, but that's harder to define. There's no set rules in that regard, and and I couldn't give you any set of rules. Uh, When people try to do that, it becomes asceticism, and it's really not helpful. There needs to be an inward dealing to make us those who do not love the world and who are not involved in these things and these three things that John mentions here. Then we will be those who don't love the world. But what I can do today in this podcast, what I'm trying to do is help you to see the world for what it is. And that should be very, very helpful in causing us to be those who do not love the world. Well, I do want to end on a positive note because we've been dealing with such a negative topic. Now, also in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, the Apostle John tells us, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, for greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Praise the Lord for that, saints. We have one in us who is greater than the one who is in the world, who can defeat all the power of the enemy and bring us through safely to reign with Christ when he returns. As I said uh, earlier in the podcast, Jesus came as the king. He was rejected by the Jews. 
And so that kingdom, in terms of its outward manifestation, has been suspended for a time. There is a hidden, mysterious aspect of the kingdom that's never been suspended. That aspect of the kingdom, the hidden aspect of the kingdom of the heavens, is very much still progressing today. And that's what we want to be in today as the believers of Christ. We want to be those who are under the heavenly ruling of Christ. But a day is coming when it's not going to be hidden anymore. A day is coming, praise the Lord, saints, when the Lord, the heavenly king, will come to take possession of the earth. And that's what we look forward to. That's our hope, saints. That's our hope. And I just want to conclude by giving you a preview of what I expect will be the next episode of this podcast, which is I want to stress in this next episode, God's goal today is to reclaim the earth. It's not about going to heaven. He's not trying to get us to go to heaven. He wants to come down to the earth. That's what you see all throughout the New Testament. And at the end of the New Testament, you have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. That's going to be, as the Lord allows, the topic of the next program. And praise the Lord, saints, that's going to happen. That's how this age, this world is going to end. When Satan, as the ruler of this world, is finally and ultimately cast out first into the abyss and then into the lake of fire, then the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God and there is perfect peace and harmony all throughout the world just as God has always intended. That's our hope, saints. And when we see that on the positive side, once we've seen on the negative side just how evil this present age really is, then we will be those who really forsake all to follow Christ and stand with him for his kingdom on the earth today. May the Lord make it so. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Christian Faith Radio Hour. For more resources, you can visit thechristianfaith.org, which is my website. If you'd like to receive my e-letter, just click on the subscribe link there and enter your email address. And to connect with us by email, just send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. Until next time, may the Lord keep you in his way for his sake and his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.